Now, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to open it with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 10. Let's open in prayer. Father, again, we, we pause. We pause, we stop from the chitter-chatter to engaging with you. We need you. We need you every hour. We know apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing of any value. So, Lord, we ask that today you would take your word and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. That we would be the people that you called us to be. That we would come to be everything that you would have us be. Lord, that we'd no longer listen to stinking thinking, but listen to you and you alone. So God, speak into each of our lives at the place we're at. Purify our thoughts, those thoughts that are not of you. Remove them from our minds. And God, I pray that you'd speak through me today. And all God's people said, Amen. Colossians chapter 2, follow with me as I read in the text. Verse 8 begins, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and over all authority. Looking back at verse 8, look with me at that word philosophy. Philosophy is often an intimidating word because We really don't understand it in many cases. Philosophy, well, what is philosophy then? Well, the the word philosophy simply means, and literally, the love of wisdom. The love of wisdom is not evil. Now, that is, philosophy is not evil in itself, but it becomes evil when men seek wisdom apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Here the word is used to describe man's attempt to find out with his own intellect and research those things which can only be known by God. In a biblical sense, the first thing I want to call your attention to is is a little kid oftentimes asks as they begin to grow up, why am I here? Where did I come from? When we get older, we, we, we ask the question, What is life all about? Question after question after question. And every one of those questions is answered in the very Word of God. The deepest need to know where you come from is here. Where did this world come from? It's here in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth. End of conversation. And then he tells us 
how the earth, in a sense, was created. That is, in the order of events. He doesn't give us all the details, but he gives us the answer to those deepest needs. Philosophy, again, is apart from God. Trying to figure out in this world, why are we in this world? Where am I going to go when this life is over? Will I turn into a dinosaur or a bug? And it's amazing when you talk to people, when this life is over, what they think life is going to be like. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. We, we read this last week in a, in a different translation. The idea is if a person's not born again, he's not going to understand this word of God. He's not going to understand the very heart of God. This is one of the reasons, again, a person must be born again. And when a person's born again, all of a sudden, the word of God begins to make sense. It jumps off the pages at us. It doesn't mean we understand everything. But all of a sudden, these answers, these deep answers, these deep needs we need to know are answered, and they're answered in the Word of God. It is evil, that is, philosophy, because it exalts man's reason above God. Philosophy, in most cases, exalts the the creature above God. The Creator. Now, in the context, again, of this passage here, the writer is combating, if you understand, again, the, the false teachers, the heretics, the legalizers in this text. And he's dealing with what they're teaching, and he calls it empty deceit. Philosophy and empty deceit. Now, And he's explaining this, and it's important to understand, in reference to human tradition, the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The philosophy that we're talking about here is the philosophy of those within what's called the professing body of Christ. Acts 17, 18, the mention of the Epicureans, philosophers. Now, the word philosophy is only mentioned once in the Bible, yet there are many applications and pictures of man's wisdom that he puts above the Word of God. Now, the Epicurean philosophy taught, and if you read church history or any book, it's going to tell you these were philosophers, and they taught the chief end of man was the avoidance of pain. They were materialists. They denied the existence of God, but they believed that something was involved in man's life. When a person died, they believed that his body and soul just disappeared, disintegrated. On the other hand, the the Stoic philosophy taught self-mastery. The goal of life was to reach this high place of indifference and pleasure and pain. Paul was described, if you remember, as a babbler, a seed picker. Paul, stop and think, was a philosopher. 
He could speak equally on that level. But they always exalted their thoughts, their wisdom, as they observed apart from God, higher. So they considered his was picking a little here and a little here and putting it together. And that's what philosophy often is. Romans 1.22 and 23 says this, Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of a corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Evolution is a philosophy. It is a faith apart from God. It comes from man's mind. Man rationalizes his sin and proves his utter foolishness by devising and believing in his own philosophies about God, the universe, and himself. In Psalm 14, and also in Psalm 53, the fool says his heart, there is no God. The philosophy of this world will take you away from God. It will separate you from each other and separate you from this world. As the man looked around, he saw the people were not facing the basic questions of life, such as, where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? And what is life all about? Eventually, he found a a peasant people in Russia answered these questions through their Christian faith. He, too, came to realize only in Jesus Christ do we have true meaning of life. It is not in the world's philosophy. It is not in the world's thinking. That's why I use that phrase, stinking thinking. Only God can show you the truth. The truth that will set you free. See, thoughts and ideas and reasons and philosophy, false religions, they're all ideological fortresses, but they themselves can do nothing to give you substance or meaning or purpose in life. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, we're destroying every speculation, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive in the obedience of Christ. Verses oftentimes misused or misapplied. This verse simply is saying that when the world has a different view about who Christ is and what God would have you do, that he wants us to be holy people set apart for him, disciples of his, giving our lives over, that life is about love, about being with God, being conformed to that image of God. That when the the world says this is not what it's about, that we take every thought captive. Though he is not God, we take those thoughts captive. Because the enemy, when he attacks, he attacks your mind. The place of thought and action, sometimes it refers to in the scripture, he attacks our heart. Not only is it the seat of motions, but it also speaks of the will of God, the mind is sometimes, as we looked at last week, speaks of that will that's directed from that heart. That's why we need to take it captive. Now, it's important to understand in our te- a text, there's this warning, behold, 
depending on, on the text that you're using. But beware that you, you again take every thought captive. Again, look with me in the text in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Captive how? Through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, traditions, please understand, may be good, as in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, let me show you. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or letter from us, be constantly looking up and keep a watchful eye. So traditions are good, but there are traditions of man. This is where oftentimes the church divides. And we have traditions here. We do so many songs. We have a greeting. Then the pastor comes up and teaches. And then we end with a closing. That's a form of tradition. Sometimes traditions are stained glass windows or steeples. There's all kinds of traditions. And sometimes people take those traditions and they put them over the word of God that if you don't have these, you're not honoring God. How do you honor God? With your heart and with your life, as Romans chapter 1 talks about, as being a living sacrifice. Giving your life over to Him. Again, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Now the tradition he's talking about in both of those passages is the very word of God, the teaching, the instructions, and the holiness. You go back and you look at Paul's teaching. What did he teach? That our lives are to be centered upon cross, centered upon Christ himself, that we're to be conformed to that image. But traditions sometimes are bad. They're worthless even harmful, merely foolish, Gnostic beliefs. Remember philosophy, that love of wisdom, and Gnostic, the basis for that is to know. See, I know more than you because I read this book. If you want to know what I know, I read this book, and I read it in place of the Bible. That's what some people will teach you. Or maybe in a dream, someone he believes has spoken to him, an angel, which the scripture warns us, and it contradicts the word of God. A higher knowing, and that's why they call Gnostics. They were in the know. And they would look down upon others. That's why Paul says, be constantly looking. Now see, the word, the idea is, it's continually. As God's moving in your life, the enemy is going to attack. You're to keep a, a watchful eye, ever open, not fearful, but to be wise. I remember the first day that our son was going to get on the bus and go to school that very first day. And let me tell you, on that first day and the second day and the third day and the fourth day, my wife was very watchful over my son. And you understand that as a mom and dad. Paul's being watchful over me. He's encouraging them to be watchful over what you hear, what you see, who you listen to. 
we are to exercise discernments. Now the words take captive, they're, they're used regularly for taking captive of someone in a war. It depicts false teachers, you know, stealing people. Another way to put it is kidnappers. The enemy wants to kidnap you, take you away, and entrap you, prevent you from being what God would have you be. And how does he do it? He goes by attacking our minds. You don't need to be set apart for God. You don't need to be holy. Telling you, you have this freedom, and you do have the freedom. You know what the freedom really is? Yes, you have freedom to do things, but you have the freedom no longer to sin. Sin is a choice that you and I make. Like a dog returning to its vomit. Anyone guilty? I was choking on my own words. I'm going to put my hand up. Because... I have. And I recognize that, and that is what he's saying here. You need to be watchful. You need to be careful. Paul's raising the alarm three times in this text, in in the verses that will follow in the next week or two. And notice what he says again. And he says it forcefully and expressively. Don't let anyone kidnap you in verse 8. I'm adding that word for kidnap in place of taking you captive. Verse 16, do not let anyone condemn you because of your beliefs. And do not let anyone disqualify you in verse 18. And we'll look at those next week. Paul warns because the enemy wants to make you ineffective in the kingdom. God has so much for you. He wants to use you. And he wants you to know the joy of being used that he can use you. So it means this idea of philosophy was kidnap the Colossians through philosophy and empty deception. Paul's right in against, again, any philosophy of life. No, he's not writing against any at all, but a select group, as we mentioned here, based upon human ideas, based upon experience, apart from Christ. So there is, can be good philosophy and bad philosophy. Our philosophy, you have a philosophy and I have a philosophy, but it's established by what we read in the Word of God. It is not a worldly philosophy that replaces God. That's what he's talking about. When philosophy replaces God for human wisdom and exalts man himself, then you're in the wrong place, listening to the very wrong things. He's condemning the teaching that credits humanity and not Christ. Look with me in Matthew 16, verse 6, beginning. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The leaven speaks of that false teaching. Now these Pharisees and these Sadducees were both, had their own philosophical ideas. They had their own philosophy. They contradicted each other. They could not come in agreement except for on one thing. Jesus had to go. That was their philosophy. Jesus had to go. That's what philosophy does. It replaces, as I mentioned. Now, 
Josephus wrote, the first century historian wrote, there are three philosophical sects among the Jews. The following, the first of them is Pharisees, the second of them is Sadducees, the third of those was the Essenes. Josephus, along with others, said this was a philosophy. It was a part from the Bible. They had their own traditions that they were trusting in apart from God's mercy and God's grace. So this philosophy, when we stop and think about it, the term is broad. It encompasses religious sects. Here's the idea. Because they have their own doctrine, sometimes separate from the very Word of God. That's why what we try to do is let our doctrine be the very Word of God. That's what we look to. And we need to remain teachable and open. If someone comes and we see it in the Scripture, we need to change. We need to come underneath the Word of God. We need to come underneath Jesus Christ. And sadly, the church has its philosophy just as the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, or sects. In a sense, we're divided in our denominations that way. You know what divides us? The body of Christ is denominations. Jesus wants to bring us together as one, and he wants us to be in his word, under his word, and standing for his word. Now, when it's referring to in our text, most likely it's referring to, again, this transcendent, this higher knowledge attained through a mystical experience. If someone had a dream here last night, they come in and tell me this, and we get all excited. We had the person give a testimony of, the, of this dream. Oh, this is what we're going to do from now on because it's a dream, it's of God. That's basically what they're talking about. We've had people come in and want to take over the pulpit because they had a dream last night. We have the for sure word of God. Whether it be on your, your iPad, your iPhone, or you have a Bible, that is the word of God. There have been people through the years that I've met, and they say, well, it's wonderful that you teach the word, but I want the, the real prophetic word. Someone to prophesy over them. And when a man prophesies, and if it does not line up with the scripture, it is not of God. And these people oftentimes have their own philosophy, what they think the church should be. Now the church is made up of sinners. Did you notice that? Yeah. And yeah, and we're, we're being perfected. There's no one perfect here. If you're perfect here, you think you better go. Because we're not. It's a deception. No one in this life will ever be perfect until he finishes the work in you and me and we're taken out of this place. But hopefully we'll be more like him each and every day. So Paul goes on and he describes again this philosophy. It's empty deception. Deceit. It's, it's fraud. It's, it's a trick. And, and people sometimes have a difficult time. No one would try and deceive me. The guys on TV, they wouldn't try and deceive me. They wouldn't try and manipulate me. Have you ever watched TV? Those Christian pastors, some of them, they have agenda. 
We're not going to be here unless you dig deep in your pocket next week. For God guides, God provides. It's not wrong to make no one a, a need. It's wrong to manipulate. That's a philosophy of the way you, you do it. Or, or when we do an offering, we have the offering box passing every week and, and preaching at you over the, the offering. Every week. Something I learned a long time ago. Happy, healthy sheep know how to give. You do not need to manipulate people. That is another form of philosophy. Philosophy of the Colossian false teachers was not what it appeared to be. It sounded good. It seduced the minds. It deceived the people with an empty illusion. Paul gives two sources for such vain speculation. First, the tradition of men. The word tradition is paradosis. It means delivery or handed over or transmission. It, what it is is the idea of the teaching was handed on as a, a precept, a doctrine from generation to generation. But what it was is not the word of God. That's why the best thing that you and I could ever be is be a Berean and examine the scripture and see if it's really so. Not just to believe it because we read it. Just because people have believed something and handed it down, our forefathers does not always make it right or make it true. Years later, we still need to examine. We still need to, to prove it. Test it. And that is true. Hang on to a net that's not spit out. So tradition can perpetuate from generation to generation and still not be biblical. First century Judaism has proved that example, the effects of that tradition, and Jewish leaders and teachers added to the word of God when you stop and think about it. They added customs and they added rituals and, and teachings so much that they no longer could distinguish what was the traditions of men or the word of God. The people just didn't know. Let me show you in Mark 7, verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, referring to Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition, notice the tradition of elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Going down to verse 8 and 9 in the same text, it says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of, notice, men. He was also saying to them, your experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. I have friends, and I'm sure you do, that I believe love the Lord, but they, they elevate these traditions. They put great emphasis on traditions. They focus upon doing instead of letting God do through them. They're man's reasoning, and why some of those may be good, but they tend to begin to put them over the very word of God, and it's a dangerous place to be. 
See, in the case of these traditions, they were falsehood handed down from generation to generation. Notice the second thing, or second source of false philosophy is is really, again, the elementary principles of the world. The elementary principles of the world. We find a similar passage in Hebrews 5.12. Let me read it. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again of someone to teach you. Notice the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk, not solid food. So what are these elementary principles? They, they refer to the ABCs of something. The ABCs are really of, of the Bible, of the Word of God, who Jesus Christ is, or whatever the text is. By now they should be teachers, but, but they're back on the basics again. They've not moved forward. In fact, what they've done is move backwards, is what, again, the writer of Hebrews is saying. By now you ought to be teachers. By the way, who does that apply to? Let me give you a hint. To you. Every one of us. Are to be teachers of the Word of God in some capacity. We're to be ready in season and out of season to give a word, to share with somebody in the street, to the hospital, in our, our workplaces. Every one of us should be a teacher in some capacity. And when we choose to be available to God, what we find when we're in those places, and you don't think you have the word, but yet you've been prepared, God brings that word to your tongue right then, and you go, wow. Time and time again, it was the right word for the right time, just as Proverbs would talk about. In the context, what he's talking about, again, and and back to Colossians, in the context, he devotes falsely, worldly, elementary teachings, accepting their false teaching. They were trying to lead them astray. Now I want to insert something in here. Think about the word apostasy. We all understand that, right? Apostasy means falling away. Falling away from the truth. These that he's speaking about in Hebrews were on the edge of falling away. They once knew that word of God. But they needed the basics. They were falling away from the truth. This is the beginning of apostasy when, when we once accepted, when we once knew the truth, when we once cleaved to Jesus Christ and we no longer do that and fall away from the truth. We're falling down that path of apostasy. And if we do not stop where we're going, that's what the writer in Hebrews is trying to prevent them. Wake up. You know where you're at. You know where you're going. Because to leave the truth completely is apostate. Paul was counteracting the Colossian heresy. It's the responsibility of every pastor, every ministry person, every mom, every dad. Let me add one more. Every friend. If you have a friend, you have a brother or sister that is drifting, you have that individual responsibility, as I do, to go to them if you really do love them. But I don't know, you say. Then get in the Word. Ask questions. Pray that God would give you the wisdom and discernment, and that wisdom and discernment will come from 
God himself. Let me read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and eventually to 21. Notice the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us it's being saved. It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. I'm going to stop there just for a second. Notice the, the wisdom of the wise. See, this again is the philosopher, even though the word is not mentioned there. The Bible is full of people with their own philosophy apart from God. That's what the world says about Jesus. He is not God. He is not God in the flesh. That's what the, the, the Colossian heresy part of it was. And we're going to see it's more than just that as we go through in the weeks to come. So God says, I'm going to deal with this. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? That's the philosopher again. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. You see their philosophy in there? You had a philosophy before you came to Christ. It may have been, well, I'm going to wait till I get old and I'm married, I have kids to quit fooling around. Or maybe I'm going to take drugs now, but when I have kids, I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to believe in Jesus when I see the tribulation come. All of these things are a type of philosophy because we've heard it from other people. They've heard maybe the rapture is coming afterwards or like we're going to be able to wake up. They establish their own philosophy or another way of saying it, it's stinking thinking and I bought into that for many years. And maybe you have too. And maybe you have a friend that we need to speak to. Look at Galatians 4.3. So also, we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary things of the world. God was revealing himself through creation. He was revealing himself through the law. I can expand on it, but I'm going to just kind of cut to the chase. There is the ABCs in this world about gravity and creation. You look up and the heavens declare the glory of God. Some will go on and they'll use astrology. And the horoscopes and all those things that God had created in the beginning reveal himself, but it's all been counterfeited and people are hanging on to it, looking for this blood moon, looking for this, looking for that. You have the very word of God. Cherish it. Read it. Hide it in your heart. You cannot put it off any longer. You cannot just listen to somebody and say, I know the Word of God. You are to be a theologian is what God wants you to be. And I know that word's intimidating, but you, when you read the Word of God, it tells you about this God of the Bible. Who is this God of the Bible? You've heard the word so often. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. You ever hear that? Well, I can take you through the Old Testament right in Genesis and right through and show you that He is a God of mercy and grace and He wishes that none would perish. He finds no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Yes, we're in the dispensation of grace, but He is the same God. 
And so often in the church, people do not even know this God, and certainly the world doesn't know who we believe in. 1 Timothy 4.1, notice what it says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention, notice, to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. These demon doctrines are going through the church rapidly. And people say, oh, that sounds so good. Let's do that. And they do not look at it in light of the scripture. This is, this is a form of philosophy. The Satan is coming in and creeping in the church, as Paul warned time and time again. Well, I want to call your attention to the next point, the sufficiency of Christ. We sang that song, Christ is enough. So can you answer that? Is he really enough? In your marriage? In your finances? In your destiny? In this church? He is all that you and I ever, ever need. Let's look again. Rather than according to Christ, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form, and in him you've been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Here Christ is presented in all of his glorious majesty. He's the Christ. He's fully God. He's fully man. And he is completely sufficient for every need that you could ever have. Sadly, a, a, a woman might say, and a husband can say the same thing, she is not enough for me. She doesn't satisfy my need. That's not what she's there for, or he's there. Christ is the one that is to satisfy your deepest need. Until that need, until you come to Christ, that will never work in that relationship. He must be the sinner. The sinner of that relationship. Well, let me read from 1 John 4, 1 through 3, because you're going to hear all kinds of different things. You're going to hear them, especially this week, because of the message I'm at. The enemy is going to attack you. He's going to bombard you. In fact, again, in 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3, notice what it says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into this world. And by this... You know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of an antichrist, of which you have heard and that is coming and now is already in the world. There are many that use that name of Jesus Christ, but they do not speak of the same Jesus Christ of the Bible. You've heard me say it. You will be confronted with that. Verse 9 says something interesting about him again. Uh, we see that Christ alone is all the fullness of deity, dwells in a bodily form. Everything that God is, that's him. In fact, that's God in the flesh. And this is disturbing to a cult. Because cults exalt human wisdom, human knowledge, men, creation. And Satan. Yes, there are many in the church of Satan in alarming numbers. 
In our text, a couple of weeks ago, I read from Colossians 1.19, for it was the Father's good pleasure that the fullness to dwell in Him. The fullness, everything that God is, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. You're to test the spirits. You're to see whether they're of God. Don't all of a sudden praise God they're of this or that, but they're believing a, a, a different God. Their view of God, their philosophy is something different. Jesus Christ has the power alone to save a person. That fullness that I'm talking about, it's in our text, is the same fullness that is. That fullness dwells in him. That fullness dwells in you and me. Everything that God is indwells us when the Spirit of God comes in our life. He dwells in our heart. And that should bring joy and peace encouragement and strength to our lives. He is enough. This is why the Colossian false teachers were wrong, because to them, Jesus wasn't enough. They just saw him as a little God, and they kept getting smaller and smaller and more sinful and more evil, and they saw that no... God. He couldn't be God because he came from flesh, and flesh is evil. It was their philosophy. And this is what Paul's dealing with, and he begins with it this week. Paul simply says, no. He insists that everything that God is, the, the fullness of the deity, everything in God is, that dwells in Christ. That's why we talk about Christ so much, because he's all we need. He is God. And he is here today. And that should be the most exciting thing in the world, that he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. That word dwells, it's really interesting because it it means to, to settle down. But more than settle down, you know what that means? For every believer, he's at home in your heart. He's at home in your heart. Are you at home in, are you feel like he's at home in your heart? Are you home or feel relaxed that he's in you? Some Christians are very nervous about the thought that Christ is in them. But it should be the very joy, the very strength. But that idea, that fullness that dwells, that it's essential in this understanding of the deity, that it's emphasizing the deity of really who God is and his divine nature was in Christ, but he is also in you and me. The very nature of God abodes in our life. He inhabits our our praises. And Christ, if you look, is head over all rule and authority. Which always brings me, every time I read that, if he's the head, do I let him be the head of my life? Do I let him make every decision? Because that's really, if he's the Lord of our lives, that's what it's to look like, is that we're allowing him to guide us and lead us. He's the head of our rule and authority. Because Christ is who he is, we've been made complete in him. His fullness is imparted to us. John wrote in 116, for the fullness of we have received. Every believer receives him. Not only 
it, it, we can say we believe. We can have an intellectual belief. We can believe that, yeah, he's God. But, but the true believer, the one who's born again, receives him into his life. The lead and guide and trust. He is spiritually complete because he's God. But you're spiritually complete in Christ because you can do all things in Christ who strengthens you. See, apart from him, the scripture makes clear you can do nothing, nothing of any value. In fact, Romans 3.12 says this, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You know, there's a philosophy in the church. Let me tell you here today, there's good in you. There's good in you. God picked you because you're good. Only God is good. God didn't pick you because you got it together. God didn't pick you because of how much money or how little money or what you could do for Him. God set His love upon you because He loved you. He just loved you. But notice the blessings of salvation. 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Notice what it says, seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He's granted us precious, magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of His divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world by lust. Man, that sounds like a done deal to me, doesn't it? Do you? All we have to do is believe, receive, submit. God's going to finish that work. He has given us Himself. The greatest gift you can give to God is yourself. The greatest gift to anyone else in this world is give yourself. And that's what he wants from you and me, is completely our hearts, our minds. That we would take every thought captive when it comes against Christ. That he is a God of love, a God of mercy. See, every true believer is complete in Christ. I want to encourage you today, you are complete in Christ if you are in Christ. You don't need the, the teachings about cults. You don't need the teachings of the false teachers because everything that God is, everything that you need to know has been given to you and it's in Christ. And this is what the false teachers, this is what philosophy does, is take us away from Christ. It doesn't bring us into the presence of Christ. It doesn't give us assurance. It sounds good for a moment. But it's empty. It's vain. Vain deceit. See, everyone has a choice. You have a choice each day. It's a choice. The choice to follow the wisdom of this world or human wisdom or philosophy, whatever it may be. Or simply come to Christ. To come to Christ is to come to the one alone who offers 
completeness. Father, we thank You for the grace of